0: With you, turn over to John chapter eight then this morning. We have kind of taken our time in John chapter eight, and we've uh, we've discovered that it is a chapter that is pivotal in the narrative of the Gospel of John and one that is so unbelievably rich. I'm going to get through the rest of the chapter this morning, but I feel even in doing that, I'm doing a little bit of injustice because there's some topics and some things I'd like to explore in greater detail that I just don't have time to do. By the way, if I seem distracted today, forgive me, Uh, Jason is over there when he should be right here, and it's totally messing me up right now, so, all right, so I'm just going to pretend that David is Jason for this morning, so there you go, all right. Uh, But anyway, we're going to get through the rest of the text this morning, and there's some really powerful things in here, and I think give us an opportunity for a lot of uh, self-reflection and also cause to... Fall in love with our Savior even more. And I hope that our journey through John has provided you that opportunity on a regular basis. So the last time we were in John, a couple weeks ago, we got up to this passage. And I just want to read it to remind you of where we're at. So in John chapter 8 and verse 31, we read, To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will, what? Set you free. They answered him. And that's the passage that we talked about last time we were here. So we're going to continue on in the text then. And this is what happened. So they had pointed out to him, and rightly so, that they were Abraham's descendants. But the reason they said that is because of how offended they were at his offer of freedom. We are Abraham's descendants... Never been enslaved anyone. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Why would you even make this offer to us? So Jesus then, after everything he says in verses 31 and following, now picking up in verse 37, he turns his attention back to that claim that they had made. And he says this, I know that you are Abraham's descendants. He's fully aware of who he's talking to. He understands the history of the Israelite people. He himself was a Jewish man. He knows that they are physically descended from Abraham. But he's going to call into question their true relationship to Abraham. They might be physically descended from Abraham, but are they truly his children? And so he's going to kind of give them a paternity test, if you will, to find out who their real father is. He says, yet you are looking for a way to kill me, because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in the father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard From your father, the reason they can't seem to get on the same page, the reason there's such an enormous disconnect between what Jesus is trying to accomplish and what he's claiming and what they're willing to understand is because they have two different fathers. And so, the thing that Jesus says here, I want to take a minute and explore. He says, I'm just telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence. And I want to show you how consistently Jesus is sharing this message throughout the Gospel of John. If we go to John chapter 3, for example, if you turn over there with me. John chapter 3, starting in verse 31. We're going to read 31 through 36. The one who comes from above is above all, Jesus says. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. And I want to show you how consistent this messaging is throughout the Gospel of John. Jesus has been sent by the Father to the earth to communicate the Father's will to us. And if we are willing to accept who he is, we will find life. But if we reject who he is, then we remain under the consequences and condemnation of sin, and death is all that awaits us. You look at John chapter 5, starting in verse 19. Skip over just a couple chapters. John chapter 5, starting in verse 19. Jesus gave them this answer, Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing. That's exactly the claim he's making here in chapter 8. He's only doing what he sees the Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son Again, a consistent message. And then we get to John chapter 6 and verses 46 through 47, where Jesus says simply this, No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. And of course, he's talking about himself. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. So what Jesus is saying here in John chapter 8 is what he's been saying all along from the very beginning of his ministry. I am the Son. God is the Father. I'm sent from the Father. I've come to do his will and his will. Only the things I'm telling you are the things that I've seen from him and he told me to share with you and if you don't accept this you remain condemned. If you're willing to accept this then you will have found the life that I have come to offer. So we get back to John chapter 8 then and they just double down in their response. And they simply say, Abraham is our father. That's their answer. And so here comes the paternity test, if you will. How can you know if you really are one of Abraham's children? How do you know that he really is your father? And so this is what Jesus says. If you were Abraham's children, then you would do what Abraham did. What is the test? How do you know that you are descended spiritually from Abraham? Because you're doing the things Abraham did. As it is though, you are looking for a way to kill me. You are failing the test. You're claiming to be Abraham's children, but you're not doing the things Abraham did. As it is, you're looking for a way to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your own father. And we'll get to that in just a minute but they're failing the test if they claim to be abraham's children then why aren't they acting like abraham's children this is the point that jesus is making so i want to ask a question if the way you can tell if you're a descendant from abraham is by doing the things abraham did then the question is simply what did abraham do What was it that they should have been doing if Abraham was their father? And there's two things I'd like to point out quickly. Number one, if you go back to Genesis chapter 15, turn over there with me if you would. Genesis chapter 15. And let me read for you the first six verses. Genesis chapter 15, starting in verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your reward, is very great. Now you remember a few chapters earlier in chapter 12, God had appeared to Abraham and given him a promise. He had made that covenant with Abraham that he would make him a great nation. Well, in order to become a great nation, you have to have descendants. And this is where Abraham is struggling. Where are those descendants going to come from? But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and he said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And then verse 6, Abram believed the Lord. And it was credited to him as righteousness. So what did Abraham do? He believed the Lord. When God said something, Abram believed it. When God made him a promise, Abram believed it. This is what Jesus is saying to them. I have come from God and you don't believe what I'm telling you. That's not Abraham. That's something else. Abraham believed the Lord. And Jesus is urging them to do Exact same thing. By the way, that statement that Abram believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness is so important in our understanding of our relationship with God that Paul references it twice, once in Romans chapter 4, once in Galatians chapter 3. James references it in James chapter 2. This idea, why was Abram considered righteous? Because God took his belief and credited to him as righteousness. So the first thing Abram did was he simply believed. God, when God spoke. This is not what the Israelites in this setting are doing. When God took on flesh and walked among them and He's speaking to them, they're rejecting everything He's saying. So that's not what Abraham did. Number two, this one's maybe something you haven't considered before, but I ask you to consider it carefully this morning. This is a passage from Genesis chapter 18, and I wish we had more time to dig deeper into this chapter. We will one day in another lesson, but it's a a very beautiful, very profound, very thought-provoking event in the saga of Abram's life. This is what it says. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. Now, if you read this chapter and the chapter that follows what we find out about these three men is that one of them is God. Two of them are angels because two of them end up going their separate way and they end up in Sodom, in Gomorrah, and that's what brings out the next terrible chapter that we read about in chapter 19. But you've got this interesting situation where the Lord appears to Abraham in human form. It's not explained, makes you ask a lot of questions, and I hope you will, But here's what I want to point out to you. When God appeared to Abraham in human form, how did Abraham respond? When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and he bowed low to the ground. And there's a lot more I could say about this. I just want to encourage you to think about this. What did Abraham do? Number one, he believed God. Number two, when God appeared to him in human form, he accepted him, he recognized who he was. And he accepted him. What are the Israelites doing here? When God is speaking to them through Jesus, they're not believing, they're rejecting. And when God took on human form and appears to them in the person of Jesus, are they accepting him? Are they recognizing him for who he is? No, they're not. They're rejecting him. And so Jesus' criticism is 100% True, you can't be Abraham's children because you're not doing the things Abraham did. You're not believing and you're not accepting who I am. So who are Abraham's children? If these Israelites who are physically descended from Abraham are flunking or failing the paternity test and it's proving that they've got a a father that's not Abraham, then who are Abraham's children? Romans chapter 2, verses 28 through 29, Paul gives us a pretty blunt answer to this question. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people But from God. And again, he addresses the same question in Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Why is that important? Because Isaac was the son of what? Promise. It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. Where do you think Paul is getting this idea from? It's borne out here in John chapter 8 in this conversation Jesus is having with this particular group of Israelites at this particular time. Because they are rejecting him, Because they are not recognizing who he is, because they won't listen to his testimony, they are proving that they are not, in fact, Abraham's descendants. They are physically, but they're certainly not spiritually. And I want you to put yourself in the place of those Israelites. We talked about this a little bit in Paul's class this morning. And by the way, just another sales pitch. If you have not been here for the Sunday morning series on the parables that some of our men are walking us through, I encourage you to take advantage of that. they have done some excellent, excellent teaching. Think about what it would be like to be in the position of these Jewish people at that time and have a man call into question everything you understood about your personal, familial, and national identity. We are Abraham's descendants. And he's simply saying, No, you're not. How would you react to that? You'd be furious, wouldn't you? You'd be offended. And that's exactly the reaction we see from them. In John chapter 8, picking up again, this time in verse 41, their response this time is this, we are not illegitimate children. The only father we have is God himself. What are they getting across here? I think most likely what they're doing is they're referencing the idea we find consistently throughout Hebrew scriptures that when the children of Israel turn to idolatry, How did God refer to that? As what? As adultery, right? It was a a form of spiritual fornication. Think about the book of Hosea, for example, and how God uses that illustration. And so I think what they're saying is they're distancing themselves from their ancestors. Yes, it's true that at times there were generations of Israelites who were not Abraham's children because they had turned away from God and were seeking after idols, But we are not born out of that relationship. We are not born out of fornication. We are not illegitimate children. We're not like those generations. We only serve God. So yes, their argument is, we are descendants of Abraham. And this is Jesus' response. Jesus said to them, if God were indeed your father, you would love me. For I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. And why are they unable to hear what he has to say? Because of this. And this is where it really gets down to the offensive part of Jesus' message. You belong to your father. He's been hinting the whole time that they have another father who's not Abraham. So who is their father? You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. You can't be Abraham's children because you're not listening to me and you're not recognizing who I am. You are from your father, the devil, because you're doing the things he does. He's a murderer, and as he's already pointed out, your desire is to find a way to kill me, and he doesn't hold to the truth. And when I present the truth to you, You reject it. So you're not acting like Abraham, you're acting like the devil. Your true spiritual father. And of course they just love hearing that, wouldn't we all? Imagine if that was the point of my sermon today, to point my finger at all of you and tell you you're all children of Satan. I would not be getting handshakes at the door this morning, good job preacher, would I? No, nobody likes those kinds of accusations. And so we pick up in verse 45, yet because I tell the truth, Jesus says, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. I touched on this when we first started this series. One of the unfortunate things about the legacy of the Gospel of John is that it has given birth to some strong anti semitism throughout history. And it continues to do so today. What do we think about John chapter 8 and what it's actually saying about Jewish people, people of Jewish descent? Is this a reason for us to harbor ill will and hatred towards an entire group of people? No, it's not. This is a group of people in a specific time, in a specific place. They do not represent... All of the descendants of Abraham, physically. This is a specific group of people Jesus is talking to. And yet, people take this and they use it to justify their hatred, to fuel their anger and their resentment. And I just want to be blunt with you this morning. If you ever hear anyone use John, and specifically John chapter 8, because that's their favorite ammunition. If you ever hear someone use this as a way to denigrate the Jews, stop listening immediately. Because that is not a message born out of Scripture and it is not a message from God. So what is this about? This is not about delegitimizing the Jewish people. This is not Jesus writing off the entire nation of Israel. That is not what he's doing here. I want you to remember this and and just think about how ridiculous it would be to think that John is supportive of any kind of anti-Semitic notion. Jesus himself is what? A Jewish man. John is a Jewish man. All twelve of the apostles are Jewish men. The original generation of Christians in Jerusalem were all Jewish people. This is written for an audience, some of which were Jewish. The idea that anti-Semitism is somehow born out of John's teaching and what Jesus is saying here in John chapter 8 is absurd to the highest degree. And so please, join with me in rejecting that kind of nonsense. This is about de-ethnicizing salvation. I don't know if that's a word or not, but it's the only one I could think of. Okay. But the idea here that a relationship with God belongs solely to one group of people because of their ethnicity. John is undoing that kind of thinking. The Jews did not have a monopoly on God's love. And this is not true of just the Jewish people, but any group of people who would seek to exclude any other group of people because of any man-made criteria. Who is God's love available to? Everyone. What was the promise first made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12? That through him all the nations of the earth would find a blessing. That's what Jesus is doing here. That's why John records this. And this is what we need to understand about this passage. That the Israelites do not have a stranglehold on salvation. Salvation has come through the Jews. But in Christ, it is available to all. And he's trying to get this group of people to understand in this time, in this place, that yes, you are descended from Abraham... But you can be physically descended from Abraham and still not be a child of God. You are only a child of God if you listen to what God has said and if you accept who Jesus is. So who are God's children? This goes all the way back to the prologue where we started in the Gospel of John. Listen to what John says as he's introducing Christ to us. In the beginning of his gospel, in verses 9 through 11, he says this The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, listen to what he says the world did not recognize him, but specifically, he came to that which was his own, the Israelite people, and his own did not receive him. Are we seeing that come to fruition in John chapter 8? Yes. But then listen to what else is said. Yet to all who did receive him. Again, regardless of ethnicity. To all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become, what? Children of God. The very thing this group of Israelites was struggling to understand. The thing they thought identified them and place them on a pedestal higher than all other groups of people, the fact that they were children of God, descendants of Abraham. Through Jesus, everyone is given the right to become children of God. Those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, this is not about genealogy, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. This is the invitation of the Christ, that all have the right now to become children of God through faith in his name. And that's what they're not understanding. Okay, one last thing we got to talk about in this passage. And I'm going to read through kind of the second half of this text we're looking at this morning rather quickly just to to get you to the climax of this whole thing. Okay, so we pick up in verse 48. The Jews answered him to all this. They say, aren't we right insane? So all of their arguments have faltered, so what do they resort to? Well, let's just accuse you of being dumb and crazy. Aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan? And of course, Samaritans can't know anything, right? I mean, again shows their bias. Aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I would encourage you on your own, cross-reference Matthew chapter 12, when they accuse Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub to see how strongly Jesus reacts to that kind of accusation. Aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I am not possessed by a demon said Jesus, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this, they exclaimed, now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died and so did the prophets, yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death? Are you telling us you can offer us something even Father Abraham and the prophets couldn't offer us? Freedom from death somehow. Are you greater than our father Abraham? And this sets him up so perfectly. Are you greater than our father Abraham? That's a pointed question. He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? What a great question. Let's find out. Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim is your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I'd be a liar like you, but I do, not, but I do know him, and I obey his word. Your father Abraham. Okay, you want to know how I fit into this picture? In regard to Abraham, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet fifty years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. And I'm not certain that there was anything more powerful Jesus ever uttered in his earthly ministry than those two words. Before Abraham was born, I am. Now we'll talk about why that's so significant in a second, but they instantly recognized the weight of those words. So strong is their reaction to what he says there, that it says at this they picked up stones to stone him. There's only one way you can react to a man saying that, and that's to put him to death there on the spot. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. This group of Jews that was opposed to everything about Jesus eventually would get their way. And they would arrest him and they would put him to death. But that was all according to his will. And he was not going to let that happen before he was ready. And so he slips away. Now what is it about those words, I am, that made them so mad? And for that we got to go all the way back to Exodus chapter 3. The Israelites are suffering oppression at the hand of of the Egyptians, Pharaoh using them as slave labor, and God appears to Moses in the form of a burning bush. It's on fire, but it's not burning up. It says, an angel of the Lord appeared that way, and then the voice of God himself comes out of the bush and begins speaking to Moses and tells Moses, I have seen the suffering of my people, and I'm going to interject, and I'm going to rescue them, and I'm going to send you to do it. You're going to go to Pharaoh and release my people from bondage. And Moses starts to ask some questions. And Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, this is how God introduced himself to Moses, I am the God of your father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This generation of Israelites knew of God, but they didn't know God. He was still to them, not a personal God, but a God of their ancestors. And so Moses says, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. When Jesus makes the statement before Abraham was born, I am. He's not claiming just to be sent by the father. He's making the claim that he is one with the Father. He's making a claim of deity. How do you understand the nature of Jesus? How do you frame that in your own mind? Who is he? How would you describe him to a friend? Why do you worship him? Passages like the one that Colin read for us out of Colossians chapter 1 deal with what we call Christology. The way that we Explain the nature of Christ and how his relationship to the Father is explained. There's another passage in Hebrews chapter 1 that gets at the same thing. I would encourage you to read both of those passages as you get time. But what Jesus is saying unequivocally to this group of Israelites is that I am one with God. And at that, if you're not convinced of him, And you think he's just a man, you'd be right there with this group of people, picking up stones. And yet, this Savior, who has these harsh words for this group of people, came to offer himself for this group of people. That's the the shocking nature of the God that we serve. That he would die for not just the helpless, as Paul puts it in Romans chapter 5, but for his enemies that those who were picking up stones, those who delivered them over to the Romans, those who were jeering at him at the foot of the cross, are the very ones he died to save. And so I want to offer you one last passage. and encourage you to think about this as we bring this lesson to a close this morning. This is what Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3. Who are God's children? If God's Physical descendants from Abraham couldn't figure it out. Is there any hope for us today? So in Christ Jesus, Paul says, you are all children of God through faith. Can I read it again? So in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through Through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This is the beauty of the gospel message. I want you to ask yourself the question this morning, am I a child of God? And what would qualify that in your own mind? And according to the hope of the gospel, according to what Jesus taught, and according to what the apostles hand down to us, the only answer to that question is, I know I'm a child of God because I am in Christ Jesus. That's the only prerequisite. It doesn't matter where you come from, It doesn't matter what history you bring with you. It doesn't matter what qualifiers you think you have to lay at the table to earn the right to become a child of God. You are a child of God if you are in Christ Jesus. And so the question this morning for you is, are you in Christ Jesus? Have you put him on in baptism like Paul talks about here this morning? And if not, what on earth are you waiting for? The opportunity is here, it is present, it is right in front of you if you believe in the words of Christ, if you're willing to recognize who he is, then begin life anew this morning as a true child of God. We offer you that opportunity. If there's any way we can serve you, if you want to study, if you want prayers, if you're ready to put Christ on in baptism, let's do it right here, right now. Whatever it is, however it is, that we might be able to serve you, let us know. Will you stand and will you sing this last song with us? If we can serve you any way, come forward and let me know. Let's stand and sing. I'm in the way, the bright and shining way, I'm in the glory land, glory land way, Telling the world that Jesus says today, yes, I'm in the glory land.